what what COVID has shown us is that even the most stable businesses, even the businesses with the highest level of brand, can all of a sudden be hurt. If Nordstrom's can, you know, be threatened to go out of business, uh, if you know American Airlines and and other very profitable airlines can all of a sudden be begging for money from the government, any real estate sector is vulnerable to disruption. Uh, both of the black swan kind and also of the technological kind. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back. Another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires. This is episode 167. Jace, happy new year. What's going on? Happy new year to you, man. Not a whole lot. Just getting ready. Yeah, 2021. Finally over, huh? It's in the rearview mirror and it'll go down in the history books as one of the craziest years <laughs> I think we've ever experienced. Do you look back at that year fondly or like I'm glad we're done or a little bit of both? For me, it's been a little bit of both. I mean, there's there's a lot of bright things, especially on the home family front and home front and financial front. Uh, you know, there's also been, you know, some tough challenges. Obviously, we haven't been able to see family as much as normal. We've had a canceled trip and, you know, we had to adjust a lot of things in our life, in our everyday life. And I know there's a lot of people out there that, that have suffered and, you know, had different things affect them in different ways. So, I, you know, in general, I think it's it's been, it's been tough, but, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good and I'm just an optimistic person in general. Right. So I look back at 2020 and, and yeah, it was a challenging year for a lot of reasons, but man, there was a lot of good stuff to happen in 2020. Yep. I'm with you. So one thing, I'm just going to switch gears here a little bit. One thing I've been thinking about, and we just did an interview this evening and then we did another one, uh, one that we launched a few weeks back where we talked about healthcare and supporting our parents in retirement, not our parents, but millennials supporting their parents, those that may not have saved up for retirement. And I just Googled for fun. This is just on NPR, so I don't know how totally accurate this are, but these are just the, the first numbers that came up here. It says if you are if you live in an assisted living center, and someone please write in if you're a little bit more familiar in, in the accuracy of these numbers, if you live in an assisted living center, it costs about $42,000 a year. On average, it's about $35,000. $3,500, excuse me, $3,500 a month. If you have a private uh, room in a nursing home, it can cost upwards to a 90000 So one of the interviews we had, I believe it was episode 163, she talked about one of the big pieces or one of the moving pieces in her future and her retirement goal is the unknown of whether she's going to have to help take care of her parents and support their retirement. And I, I just thought as we were talking to her and then we interviewed another millennial who mentioned the same type of thought, it's just an interesting thought really going forward is you think if you have this higher net worth, that's something that could really materially impact you if your parents haven't saved for retirement. Yeah, you know, you've got two things going on with the with the baby boomers slash millennial generation, right? Most of us millennials are, are, are parents of the, of the baby boomer generation. There is going to be a massive wealth transfer between the richest generation in the history of this country, the baby boomers who worked really hard, saved and invested, are going to pass along that wealth to their kids, right, or or to charities or whatever. On the flip side of that, you have a 
big chunk of that generation, like we mentioned, that may not have saved for retirement. One, because either they didn't have the access to some of these accounts or, or vehicles or they didn't have a pension program at their company or whatever it might have you or they didn't save or whatever it happened. And they essentially are, are, are fairly dependent on Social Security. They are going to move into that next phase where, like some of these millennials have mentioned, are probably going to land on their kids or the government or both to take care of them. And that whole macro level economic exchange of wealth and need, you know, we're living longer, a lot less healthy lives in, in a lot of cases. Those things, as they take place over the next, call it 30 years, I think the low end of the baby boomer generations in their mid 50s right now. So, you know, life expectancy, 25 to 30 more years for them. It's going to really play out in a very interesting manner, right? We always hear the Social Security is going to essentially be evaporated by then. And and it's going to cost a lot of money to take care of them. And it's either going to be, you know, that burden is going to fall on the government or or their children. And, you know, I think it is for, for yeah. some, depending on where their parents. And the other thing, too, I mean, parents, a lot of times they haven't had these conversations with their kids and told them where they really stand. Right. Yeah. And yeah, just to your point, there's no doubt that there's a future in healthcare, <laughs> right? I mean, if you think of anything that there could be a future in, obviously tech as well, but there is certainly a future in healthcare. I don't know. Don't you think a healthier dynamic and a healthier shift has started to happen a little bit more over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think there is a little bit of that. But the the problem we've seen, I think, with just in general in our country is a lot of times it's very easy for us to, to just prescribe medications for things. And there's a lot yeah. of modern medicine that we've been able to come up with and that, you know, science has been able to come up with and everything that can keep people alive longer. But they might not have the quality of life that they might have had. And it's really hard. I mean, families to make those decisions, right? Like, I mean, my family went through this when my sister was in a car accident. And, and, and I mean, it was, you know, and luckily she, she pulled through and, and she's alive today. But there were some very difficult decisions that had to be made. And I know a lot of families experience this at some point or another with, with their loved ones. How much, to, to take care of how much to give, how much to spend to continue, you know, some sort of quality of life or lack thereof versus mm -hmm. maybe not. Or, you know, you mentioned some people going into a nursing home or not and how much do you spend for that and what kind of care do you give them and is the quality of life there what you wanted to or can you afford it or not? I mean, there's a lot of things that play and at stake in this. Yeah, and a, yeah exactly. Right. A lot of moving pieces, a lot of moving pieces. So, Anyway, I was just thinking about that because of the interview from 163 and the other interview we did where the, I think he was, what, how old was he, Jace? 33, 34? Yeah. Worth about 800. We'll launch that this year. But he brought up the same concern as, is do my parents have enough for retirement or the same thought rather? I don't know if it was as much of a concern for him, but just it, an interesting conversation and, and one that I'd like to get on someone to have on the show. Yeah. Maybe we, we get a long-term care insurance expert on or something. You know, to discuss yeah. this and or know. somebody that's had to deal with this. Certainly yeah. there's somebody that's had to, to help pay help pay for their parents, whether it's and maybe it's just that their parents lived with them and they had to help cover that. I, mm -hmm. I I just think it's a topic that probably happens and expenses that occur more often than we think. And it's an it's something that's probably just not well, not probably, it's not talked about as openly as it should be in the sense of how much that could cost. And for ourselves too. Yeah, we, we, you don't you don't think about it as much, and I think that's again one of the big benefits of having an HSA. 
is that that money can, everybody's going to have healthcare costs. Yep. It's going to happen in some form or another. Maybe it's at a younger age because you break a bone or this or that, or you have something, you know, heaven forbid something pops up or you have a baby. But if not, by the time you're 60, 70, 80, it's not going to be hard to spend your HSA money. No, I totally agree. And and even with the, you know, who knows what kind of COVID effect we might have with the desire or lack thereof to go into these nursing homes. You know, we saw a lot of people pass in some of them. And, you know, I think that that stuff scars people for a long time. You know, if it, if yeah, it or if there's them. another COVID thing in the future too. Yeah. Who knows? Totally. Anyway, just an interesting concept. So <laughs> thanks for listening to that. It's, it's fun to, for us to talk about. Last week, just as a brief synopsis, we had Jonathan. He works as a financial advisor. So we discussed all things financial advisors with him, including who needs one and why. So go check that out. On today's interview, we have Neil. We get, we get into all things multifamily, including how this pandemic, COVID pandemic, has affected real estate pricing and how that shifted Neil's mindset and risk tolerance. He has a current net worth between five and 10 million, so over five million bucks. So an insightful interview this week with Neil. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or any of the platforms that you listen. Helps us continually grow the show. Just wanted to keep to, to read one that we got. It's titled Keeping It Real. I thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. The leaders keep it real by asking the tough questions that we all want to know. Many podcasters are just selling a product rather than providing info that we want to hear. Keep it up and keep keeping it real. So there you go, Jace. You're keeping it real, man. Do what I can, man. <laughs> So thanks for listening. Hope everybody's had a nice holiday season and a happy new year to everybody. If you want to be on the show or if you're interested in some of our real estate investment opportunities that we'll have this coming year in 2021, feel free to reach out to us and please reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Always fun to connect with people. So happy new year to everyone and please help me welcome Neil to the show. Neil, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. I am a geek, a technologist that accidentally stumbled into real estate and then discovered that we have a $4 trillion industry with uh, nowhere near the kind of technological sophistication that every other kind of industry in the U.S. has. And so I decided I'm going to be part of this new group of technologists that are disrupting commercial real estate. So we do large multifamily, about a $270 million portfolio based out of Silicon Valley and think like people in Silicon Valley. Wow, that's awesome. And what is your net worth today? Somewhere between 5 and 10 million. Depends, right? Yeah, totally. So, <laughs> one day it could be that, one day it won't be, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I think the answer is pre-COVID, post-COVID, there's definitely a difference, um, or at least in my mind there is. Yeah, so walk us through kind of maybe how you break that down, how you think about you, you know, your net worth and your real estate and your other holdings that you've shared with us. Sure. I think that the for me, real estate has always been the biggest component of that, but I do not want to be over leveraged in any one asset class. I mean, what, what COVID has shown us is that even the most stable businesses, even the businesses with the highest level of brand can all of a sudden be hurt. If Nordstrom's can, you know, be threatened to go out of business, uh, if, you know, American Airlines and, and other very profitable airlines can all of a sudden be begging for money from the government, any real estate sector is vulnerable to disruption, uh, both of the black swan kind and also of the technological kind. So I love to try and spread the money around. I'm invested in gas stations. I have equity shares in operating businesses and education. Um, I also run a real estate education company. 
So the goal is to to obviously focus on real estate because of the cash flow component, but even within real estate diversify. So I'm invested into hotels, into single family, into quadplexes, into 250 unit multifamilies. I'm invested into student housing, public storage, and a variety of other things that I can't even remember. Interesting. So Neil, I want to rewind a little bit. When you started your career, did you take this kind of the same approach in terms of investing in real estate and then diversifying in that sector as you kind of went along? Or was that something that evolved over time? I think it's very much an evolution. Uh, and it's based on my experiences, right? When you have positive experiences, you end up doubling down on those things. When you have negative experiences, you tend not to do it again. And um, I've always been very cautious to tell myself not to back away from a future opportunity just because I had a one negative experience because a you know a uh, a, a grouping of one is really no grouping at all so I've tried to you know at least try push into an area twice before I've said yeah this is not for me and so as a result I've ended up in a pretty diverse set of uh, you know opportunities and I've been happy to be exposed to those because every opportunity even if it's not a core opportunity multifamily is kind of my core opportunities but if every opportunity teaches you something new and something different the one that I didn't mention is that I'm very heavily involved in development opportunities for both student housing and multifamily also for quadplexes throughout the United States which is kind of actually very rare for people in my profession that are, you know, value add apartments indicators. But now more than half of my portfolio, I think about $150 million worth are development uh, projects. And do you have any money invested in the stock market at all or in public equities? Um, I occasionally dabble in the stock market when there's a recession. So, you know, I dabbled in 2008 and lost money and I dabbled in 2020 and lost money. So I think that I'm, I've learned that the way that the stock market functions is different from my mindset. I think the stock market functions based on emotion and sentiment, not based on data-driven estimates. I mean, there's no reason why the stock market would have had such a dizzying 40% you know, climb uh, since, you know, since, it, you know, since it crashed to the lowest numbers in, in I, I think it was late March or early April. I don't understand why that has happened. Clearly, it's happened. Clearly, it's hurt me. Luckily, I don't invest a huge amount of money. I think that in 2020, I lost about $1,800, so a very small amount of money. But I think the big lesson that I learned is whatever drives the stock market is not something that I can understand in the short term easily, simply because it, it seems that stock investors are swayed by the news of the day. And I don't run my companies like that. We run our companies based on metrics, systems, dashboards. And, you know, what's happening on a particular day doesn't sway us, but it does sway the stock market and, and it can sway it to a huge number. So uh, I'm at this point having, you know, lost money in 2008, having lost money in 2020. I'm at the point where I'm like, you know, equities, I think, are probably not for me. Yeah. So as you mentioned, it kind of hit a low March 23rd, I believe, right? At least for the major indices, not necessarily for the individual stocks. But did that make you want to put more money in? Or as you've come to this understanding that, hey, I don't know what controls this thing in the short term. And, and we've had plenty of millionaires on the show that say, 
hey, I can't control it, so I'm not going to invest in it, right? And that's what a lot of our, our real estate people have said. Did you put any more money in, though, when, when the market kept going down and down? Did you see the opportunity or just decide to stay away from it? No, I, I actually was liking it at this that as that point. So I was basically buying stocks like uh, Royal Caribbean. I was buying Boeing. And then as the market was kind of going up, I was selling them. But then when I started to realize that the U.S.'s plans to reopen were doomed as in failure, I, I felt that the market had to go down. And so what I did was I, you know, I short sold a couple of stocks and those, you know, those stocks went up, wiping out my previous gains, right? I believe that those stocks will go down at some point because now we're beginning to see that. It just took two or three months for the market to understand that the U.S.'s reopening plan was different from any other country in Europe. They went down to a certain level of infection before they reopened, and we didn't. We, we just didn't. We, we, we hit a plateau, and we announced plans to reopen. So I figured, hey, this is going to hurt the market. We're, we're doing this in a way that is non-sustainable, that the math should suggest that it's highly, highly non-sustainable, and that we would end up having to shut down again. But it actually took a month, month and a half for that, for the market to understand it. And in the meantime, you know, the, the market went up and I had to cover. So I ended up losing the money that I was making before and ended up 1800 bucks in the, in the hole. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, you mentioned Royal Caribbean and, and you're starting to see that drop now, right? A little bit. Neil, Royal Caribbean's down about 12% this week. Carnival's down 15% or so. And over the last three weeks, Carnival's down, I believe, 35% or so. So you're starting to see, obviously, it popped from where it was on March 23rd or beginning of April, I think, for the cruise stocks. But starting now, you're starting to see it go back down again. That's right. So I find that my timing with the stock market is not in sync with the typical stock market investor. And if you're not in sync with them, then you end up doing things at the wrong time for the right reasons. So we'll see. So uh, so early on, I made plenty of money on, on Royal uh, Caribbean and, and on Boeing and uh, Ulta and a few other stocks that I follow. And then basically that one Royal Caribbean dizzying increase that we saw down from, you know, down from a very low number to almost a 35% climb sort of wiped out all of those gains uh, and kind of brought me back to an even keel. Right, right. So let's back it up here a little bit, Neil. And first, I just want to hit on COVID and how that's affected you guys. And then I want to go back and hear your story about how all this got started, because now you've obviously been a successful real estate investor, about 2000 units, right? I think you currently have about 12 projects. You're invested in seven states. And I know you're in on the West Coast. So I, I want to get into all that and how it got started. But let's talk COVID for a little bit, just because that's what's going on right now. And, and everybody's pretty much affected. How has that affected you guys on, on both? the value add projects and the developments i assume it's slowed down the developments how has it impacted your rent collections so on the rent collection side we our collections ha are coming in fairly high you know there's a little bit of delinquency appearing but so far all i can say is all that's been affected is you know the the cash flow for investors for q2 there hasn't been anything beyond that i think none of our properties are at any risk we're able to pay all of our expenses with or without, you know, PPP money. Um, we're able to take care of, you know, all of our properties and still have cash flow left over. So the impact has been minimal so far. But my belief is 
that real estate has always been a trailing industry when it comes to recessions. Remember that 2008 was a recession caused by the real estate industry, and real estate didn't bottom out until 2012. That was the bottom, right? That was four years later. So we are a trailing industry. Everything moves slow in real estate. So the the, the question is, you know, really the the right question in my mind is, what do you think is going to happen in the future with regards to real estate getting hit? Because so far, the impact to multifamily has been pretty small, pretty manageable compared to, you know, stock market or other areas. I do not invest in retail or hotels. You know, I have one passive investment in hotels and that those are stabilized hotels. They're they're doing okay. They're not, you know, going out of business or anything. But so the asset classes that I invest in, the impact has been minimal. But my argument is the impact cannot remain minimal because what we have today is a truly fake economy. Pardon me for using that word, because it's it's a PPP economy. It's an EIDL economy. It's a super unemployment economy. It's a twelve hundred dollar you know checks to Americans economy. That ends by the end of July, August. I foresee there being a second round of stimulus, but but you can't do endless stimulus. So to me, I think that my Class C properties are definitely going to get hit in terms of their occupancy and in terms of of their their rent growth, in terms of their delinquency. Once we once we move out of a time frame where there's less stimulus, so I, I see there being challenges there in the future. Uh, on the development side, it's a bizarre situation. It is completely counterintuitive to what you might imagine. I have not had issues with my development projects. Uh, some of the smaller development projects like the collection of quadplexes that I'm building in Houston now have outrageously low interest rates. You know, lenders fighting to give us money at 4% and 4.25% for construction projects. Um, without the kind of impounds that we are seeing from Fannie and Freddie in the value-add category. Those those impounds are making it very difficult to make value-add projects work. So the value-add world, I mean, for the most part, we're not buying anything because we are we have no freaking idea how to value these properties because we don't know if the impounds will go away in two months or if they're going to stick around for a year. So sellers are not dropping prices. We Overall, I think we've only seen a 1% or 2% drop in prices. I think that's, that's that's completely unreasonable. That that real estate is highly overvalued, and so we're just sitting still and doing nothing. So we're being hurt, obviously, because we have a fifty thousand, sixty thousand dollar a month, you know, check to write to our, you know, employees, but no revenue coming in from the other side. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And that was going to be my follow up: is if most of your assets were or multifamily buildings, rather, were Class A or B, but you do have some Class C, you mentioned. Yep, I have a I have a spread. You know, I've got some Bs, I've got some Cs, and the new constructions are mostly A's. So if you think, hey, this stuff's overvalued, and and collections and delinquencies are going to, you know, collections are going to be down, delinquencies are going to be up. There's going to be other problems, right? And and asset values are only down one to two percent. Do you think about selling those properties that you think will be affected, or are you more, hey, I'm going to hold for the long term, so I'm not going to worry about selling right now? Because my properties have plenty of buffer, and I have long-term belief in the the benefits of the multifamily class, I'm not looking to sell. Some of my properties have 10-year loans, so prepayment penalties make it very unreasonable to, to sell anyway. And some of them are bridge, and they're not at the point in their cycle 
where we want to refinance or, you know, we can sell them, sure. But this is not a good time to sell properties. You know, you're, you are going to get people who are going to push you down. And I think that as months go on, if I start to prep my property today, I'm not going to be in the market for another 45 days. My belief in 45 days, that one to 2% is going to be three to four. And by the time, uh, you know, all is said and done and I'm in best and final, I think it's going to be 5% or higher. So my belief is prices have to go down and it's too late for me to start the process of selling. Right, right. Well, thanks. No, it's, it's, a, it's something interesting to think about. So just backing up, how is your whole port? How are you structured? You have a net worth five to 10 million. You mentioned over 2000 units. Are these individuals that invest with you, institutional investors? How you know you have properties in seven different states, right? So, how do you how do you raise the money, and then what's your thoughts on buying out of state? You mentioned before we started recording that you had property managers, and and often a joint venture partner, I guess, right? You could call them asset managers in the area. But talk a little about that structure and and raising money and sure. I don't believe in raising money from institutional sources, so I've never taken a dollar from them. We raise money from individual investors. We have about three and a half thousand accredited investors that are registered with us. We only work on projects that are 506C with accredited investors, and we raise money $100,000 at a time. That is our preferred methodology. We find that that's the most flexible methodology. Every kind of method has its own benefits. Funds have their own benefits. Institutional partners have their own benefits. But the kind of flexibility that direct-to-customer offers is unparalleled. That's the path that we're, we've been on. That's the path that we are going to stay on. So we haven't created a fund. We raise money for each individual project. And, and we feel that that is actually the best way to, to raise money. You know, large network, where do they come from? Everywhere. I mean, obviously, we have 500 investors already invested into our 13 projects, nine sta- up to nine states now. So our, our biggest, you know, input coming in is, is uh, referrals from happy investors. Um, also, um, just, you know, our, our breadth out there. So there's a lot of people that know about our technology-fueled, data-driven, virtual assistant-driven methodologies that are very unique in the industry. So a lot of people learn from that. So I have a course on Udemy about how to find the best cities and neighborhoods in the United States using uh, data and metrics and and be able to figure out how good a city in, in less than 10 minutes. You can even do it in five minutes if you knew exactly what you were doing. That course is very popular. I looked at it yesterday. There's 6,000 real estate investors taking the course today. And it's also the highest ranked real estate course on Udemy. So investors come through us through that. They come through us through our website, Multifamily University, which is multifamilyu.com. We get about 40,000 people that show up on the website each year. And about we get about 30,000 to 40,000 registrations for our webinars. We do deep dive, content-rich webinars. We did two this week. So the first one had 1,500 people signed up. The second one had 1,200 people signed up. So we did Tuesday and Thursday. And so basically, we're addressing our community directly, and that allows us to raise equity directly. So that's the and, answer to Sparta. Yeah, and where do, where, where do people sign up for those webinars or that course you mentioned? Multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter U, right? So rep, that multifamily U means multifamily university. So go to multifamilyu.com and you know sign up for any of those webinars, and then you're on our email campaign list. And so when we have webinars, we'll invite you. Um, the Udemy course, 
we can't even email you. We don't even have your email address if you're on you. So just go to udemy.com or just type in Udemy space Neil, N-E-A-L, Bawa, and you'll see my course. That's if it'll come up as the first link on Udemy. So that's a, that's a very popular course. People love the clarity that it brings to the process of picking cities and neighborhoods, step-by-step instructions, do this, figure out you know, this is the amount of population growth you want. This is the amount of job growth. This is the amount of um, home price growth. This is the crime level. And and most importantly, where do you find this data so that you can evaluate a city in less than 10 minutes and evaluate a neighborhood in less than five? Yeah. So those instructions are in the Udemy course. So you you would definitely have to go to udemy.com to take that course. Okay. Okay, great. And And is that free or paid? It's free. All of our education is free because we believe in open sourcing education. Well, I did a class on Tuesday that had 31 demos of how I recruit, manage, and grow my army of virtual assistants. We have uh, nine employees that are U.S.-based and 18 virtual assistants full-time. Oh, and wow. it was a demo of my team. I mean, my the my team's names were visible. Everything was visible. We, we believe in goodness. We believe in openness. We believe that when we give, we get 10,000% back. And there's going to be an occasion that will hurt us, but it's more than made up for <laughs> by everyone else out there that's helping us grow. Sure. So what, what's your structure, Neil, on, on the deals? Is there a carry? Is there a pref return? How do you structure it? 7038 pref. Um, so those are that's the most common, um, though we've done deals that are 7525. Uh, we've done deals that are 8020. We've done deals that are 6040. It really depends on the project itself and how much is available. Uh, construction deals obviously carry a development fee uh, as well. But, um, but uh, you know, in other aspects, I think our, our value-add deals are fairly straightforward. The value we bring is in asset management. I mean, sure, we can pick, you know, cities using a method that's pretty famous now. I've, I've taught it at over 50 conferences. Um, but beyond that point, right? I think the magic is in the asset management. And that's where we really excel. That's where we are unique in that no one else has an entire call center in the Philippines dedicated to optimizing properties. And we do. We make about 50,000 phone calls to optimize our properties. Those go towards, you know, getting uh, prospective tenants into our property. So we, we schedule appointments for our entire portfolio, not our property managers. Uh, so we've taken that task over, and we also generate about 20,000 prospective tenant leads for our properties ourselves each year, and we process them using phone and email and texting and bring them into the properties. And then we go on to help with delinquency. We go on to help with reputation management and a lot of other services. So think of that as a super layer that sits on top of regular property management. Yeah, that's interesting and not something we've heard about on the show. So you said 18 virtual assistants that work with work for you full time? Yes. And and they talk with the tenants uh, directly? Yes. Even they they also talk with investors, right? If they and so the tenants what? They reach out to them if there's an issue if there's a leak in their apartment, for example. No, we don't we don't handle maintenance. Our goal was to optimize the things that property managers don't tend to do well. And we identified leasing as the number one area where property management quality is variable. So we do a huge amount of lead generation, and then we do a huge amount, massive amount of lead processing, right? So those are prospective tenants, not existing tenants. 
For existing tenants, we help with delinquency management. We also help with reputation management, which is a process of asking tenants for five-star reviews. But when the tenant has a leak, he still is calling the property, not us. Gotcha. And, and you said you're up to nine states now. So at each of these states, obviously, you guys are on the West Coast, so you're not, you're, you know, that you're not able to go to all of them all the time. You have a property manager, though, that's located close to each property. We, we're using property managers that are focused in those metros. So the vast majority of the time, we do not use a single property management company that's national. We, so we, for, we basically will hire best-in-class property managers for that particular metro. So our property manager is local. Obviously, the staff at the property is local. And then for most of our projects, we have an operating partner or an asset manager. And you know, often, not always, but often those asset managers are also local. And if they're not local, they are on a structured, written-down schedule of visits to the property. Gotcha. So the property management, you hire a property management company. They don't necessarily work. You don't pay them salary. You pay them as for the property management company. They're, they're third-party property management companies. Right. I mean, obviously, right. staff of the property is technically ours. So if we fire the property manager, we keep the staff. That's, that's pretty normal. That, you know, that's the industry normal. Um, but we do not own a property management company. We own an asset management efficiency layer that we call the efficiency center. And that layer sits on top of every property manager. Interesting. So let's back it up, Neil, to the beginning here, right? We've talked about where you're at now and some of the issues in COVID. How did this all start? Where did you get, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning when Jace asked just for the elevator pitch, but how did you buy your your first property? Didn't buy. I mean, most people start by buying a single family rental or doing a flip or doing, you know, a private loan. I started because in 2003, my technology company decided that we didn't want to be renters anymore. And so we ended up building a custom 27,000 square foot campus for our use. And it was very custom, very, very custom. You you couldn't possibly use it for a, a different company as an office. And the lessons that I learned from nine months of running a company that was growing at 30% a year during the day, and then doing all the construction work in the afternoon and evening, the planning uh, was incredible. I mean, I, I whined and complained and to my partner and, 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 you know, CEO all the way through, but I've, you know, never stopped thanking him since. So why I, what I learned there was extremely valuable. Most indicators don't understand it. Um, because when you build a building, you have to know every component of it, every part of it, every last air register, every last, you know, vent, uh, the air conditioning, the heating, the fire codes. Uh, all of that stuff has to be known to you when you're building a building from scratch, especially for custom use. And so when once I learned that, I caught the real estate bug. And then I started to use, you know, data science metrics to identify cities and states in the U.S. to invest in and started publishing that information. I opened a meetup group and started talking about my technologies and methods and said, hey, I don't see anybody else using metrics and dashboards to identify cities and neighborhoods to invest in. So I decided to do it myself. And I'm not a real estate guy. I'm running a technology company, but this is interesting stuff. I want to tell people about it. And so meetup groups started inviting me in to talk about it. And then eventually I opened my own meetup group with some friends inside of my technology business. So we'd actually meet in that custom campus that we had built in 2003. And it sort of snowballed from there. I mean, I thought maybe 10 guys are going to show up to listen to this dork who is not a real estate guy, doesn't have a sales pitch, that is doesn't even have anything to offer anybody, but is just talking about his experiences. But because I'm in Silicon Valley and there's lots of geeks and dorks here, 
my following sort of exploded. And before I knew it, we would end up packing every single meetup, every standing room. And so then people started calling me to conferences and podcasts and it sort of snowballed over time. And by the time I was ready to you know, sell the business, the senior partner and I were ready to sell the business in 2013, you know, a very significant portion of that brand had already developed. So it, it, it all sounds like it was well-planned, but it, none of it was. You know, that kind of leads into the, the next topic I want to discuss. I know you're pretty big on on positivity and karma. How has that played a role in into what you've accomplished and, and where you're headed? Well, firstly, I think it plays a role when you're in trouble, when you're in a situation where your back is against the wall. And knowing, you know, being positive really helps. But one, one of the things I like to say is, you know, I'm I'm... I'm more focused on karma than positivity because I've noticed that in some of my projects, my other partners were more positive than me, though they should have been bearish. They should have been afraid and they weren't. And those projects didn't do well because of that. And to me, I think I want to modify it by saying positivity has to be blended with caution when you're using other people's money. Karma is another matter altogether because in, I, my, my key belief is that, and then this is not a, spiritual belief it's actually more of a it's it's more based in physics that what you put out there really comes back to you 10x whether you do a positive thing or a negative thing when we when i wrote a udemy course that was best in class and put it out there people told me i was stupid and should charge ten thousand dollars for it and i'm like no this this is information that every investor in america needs to know so i'm going to put it on a platform that doesn't even give me their email address and i want to see what happens with it and I can tell you the result has been massive because the the size of that platform, Udemy, their reach is 100x my reach, maybe 1,000x my reach. And I've benefited from that. But I didn't start out that way. I just said, this is something good that people need to know about. So I'm going to just put it out there and see what happens with it. And And I've benefited from that. So uh, there's a lot of people out there they're just focused on what's in it for me from every webinar, every statement, every word. And I, I think that when you do that, you shoot yourself in the foot constantly. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And, and, you know, even our podcast, we, we don't obviously make hardly any money on it, just enough to keep it going. But something that we're just trying to provide to people is education and interest. And we get value and I, I think others do too. So commendable. Appreciate that. And and I think there's side benefits, right? Like you, you, you mentioned, you connect with people, you learn things, right? A lot of it is helps you grow and, and, and improve as well. So, Neil, what's what are some of the mistakes you've made? Maybe a, a worse deal, or on the flip side, what what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to either start in real estate on a big project level or a smaller project level? So my first piece of advice is when you have a deal going wrong, there's a natural tendency to go focus on something else in your life that's that that's going right. Do the reverse. Focus on the deal that is going wrong, because. Your net worth is not the number of dollars you have. Your net worth is are the is the karma that you've committed towards your worst deal. And usually you'll find that if you do that, if you focus on that bad deal, you're going to change for the better as an individual. You're going to find means and methodologies that you wouldn't have found before. Because we truly, as humans, elevate ourselves and perform at a different level when we have challenges. So here's an example. You know, we bought a property in 2015 in South Chicago. And after we bought the property, we realized there was significant problems with it. We discussed that with our investors. We were very above board. 
But the challenge was that the property was not getting anywhere near the lead flow that it that it needed to to survive and thrive. And I calculated that I needed to 10x the lead flow, 10x what it was currently getting. And the only way to 10x was to use digital media. So I hired my first full-time virtual assistant um, in the Philippines. I hired a hacker in um, um, U- the Ukraine, and I told the hacker, I need you to find me a way to for this property to be 10x more visible on the engines, and I'll work with you on it. So he and I worked together on it. He asked me to go to the city post office and get more addresses. Most properties in the U.S. that are older than 50 years have more than one address. So we used that, and he used that to his advantage. We found many different engines. We found different hacks. We found engines that allowed you, instead of having one listing per address, to do five listing per address. We wrote scripts so that we would click on the renew button every hour, bouncing our property up to the top. We, instead of doing one Craigslist ad, we did 12 using 12 different addresses and a VPN. We did all kinds of crazy stuff. I could write an entire book on it. But as a result, the property started receiving 15 to 16 times the lead flow that it was getting on the day that we walked in through the door. All of that happened in about 10 weeks. It's because I could have just turned away from it and said, hey, I have lots of other properties. I, you know, I'm not going to go and do something weirdly unusual on this. But I, I decided I am going to do something weirdly unusual. And it led to us building that efficiency center platform that exists today for all of our properties. It really came out of the stress that we felt in the first 10 or 12 weeks of, of that property. Wow. It's, you know, it's, it's not new. I mean, this is an old example many years ago, but it was uh, in my mind. I mean, and that property, I, I, I can't say that it was a huge success. I can't say we made loads of money. You know, the property still had other struggles and we struggled with it. But I think that the other investors in my other properties have benefited massively from what we learned from that one property. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. So, Neil, I think you mentioned earlier, but where can people find you and, and get a hold of you if they want to learn more? Well, the best way to find me is by typing my na- name into Google. As it happens, for better and for worse, I am the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. That's N-E-A-L, first name, Bawa, B-A-W-A. So hit, hit that and hit enter. Or if you'd like to learn more about deep dive, data-driven, technology-driven webinars on how to hack real estate, then come to our our portal, which is multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. And if you want to take our most popular course, simply type in Udemy space Neil Bawa into Google, click the first link. That's our course. As I mentioned, we don't even get your email address, so you probably won't hear from us. But um, hopefully that will convince you to join our ecosystem of uh, investors and, and folks that are looking at multifamily. We do teach all of our techniques in a boot camp that we hold about three times a year. Um, so you're welcome to join that boot camp as well. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, Neil. Appreciate the time. And I think we've taken enough of yours. So appreciate you coming on uh, this afternoon. And thanks for sharing all the, the advice. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.